Praise the Lord. You can be seated. Be turning uh, to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 tonight. And I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to review a little bit because the price of learning is repetition. And, uh, you know, number two, uh, we didn't get last Sunday night recorded. It was just, that's just on me. It's the last session we didn't get recorded. So um, I want to review a little bit and, you know, let everybody kind of catch up. So the first part of this isn't necessarily on your handout for tonight, but it's on handouts from pre- previous weeks. And, um, and, and we are recording tonight, correct? Are we recording tonight? We are. We've got both buttons pushed, and we're recording tonight, so praise the Lord. Um, so, so, you know, here for the first three or four weeks, <clears throat> we're kind of doing a little bit of background in addition to looking at certain, you know, be- the beginning of the book of Psalms as well. And so for some of the background, we've talked about Psalms being the 19th book of the Bible, 150 chapters. 2,461 verses, 43,743 words. So that takes you about, I think, about five and a half hours probably to read through the entire book of Psalms. Uh, We mentioned how the oldest one, Psalm 90, written by Moses about 1450 B.C., 14, you know, somewhere around in there. The youngest psalm is Psalm, we think, is Psalm 1, kind of placed as a preface to the entire book, probably by Ezra, uh, but in about 444 B.C., as, as all of the, the psalms which were inspired and should be put in the book of God as sacred scripture were being put together. We asked a question about who wrote them. We came up with David about 50% of the time, or a little bit even over 50%. Certainly 73, I think, of the Psalms say in the superscription they're by David, and a couple other ones are added, and then a couple more from, you know, comments in the Old Testament, so we get about 77 or so. Uh, Asaph, writing Psalm 73 to 80 and Psalm 50. Sons of Korah, which was a real encouragement given um, the family they came from, but that should be an encouragement to all of us. I mean, they grew up, Korah's sons grew up fatherless. So they grew up without a father because, boy, dad was, you know, kind of a reprobate and, uh, I mean, to the extreme. Uh, So much so that the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed him down a hell hole, down to the hell hole hole, hole down to the hell hole. And, um, you know, so it's really, you know, bad situation there uh, back in the book of Numbers. But um, the children of Korah, who were also Levites like Moses was, later on David takes them and says, hey, you know, you guys are worth it. Um, You know, you guys need to be in the cycle here. And then so Psalms 42 to 49 and 84 and 85 and 87 and then um, a person named Jedithan, uh authored Psalms 39, 62, and at least conducted Psalm 77. Solomon wrote or commissioned the writing of Psalm 72, 127. Heman the Ezraite, Psalm 88. Ethan the Ezraite, Psalm 89. Moses then, as we mentioned, Psalm 90. So there's about eight specific people that we know that authored psalms. That still leaves us with probably approaching about 40 psalms that are what we would call orphans, 
orphan psalms because we do not know who the author is, except we know the author's Holy Spirit. Now, why do we have the book of Psalms? Well, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 4 tells us, God, God gives us the Psalms as the hymn book of the ancient Hebrews to record, which means remember, commemorate, or in, invoke even, invoke God, but to record, to thank, and to praise. And as I mentioned this morning, all the religions that do not believe in the one true living God, they have no reason to do that. Um, you know, if you're a Buddhist and you think that all of life is only about extinguishing your soul because that's what you've got to go to, why do you record anything? There are not many Buddhist historians. Uh, you know, there are not many Muslim historians. I mean, they, they know their history, but it's not like this is an important thing to them. But for the Christian... For the Christian, you want to see how God has acted in previous times because you know that's going to tell you something about how he's going to act for you today. So recording is important and thanking God is important and that leads to praise so you put it into song or in this case into psalm. How were they written? Well, we talked about how it's rhythm and not rhyme, and because of that, we've got to learn from them in a certain way. So we learn from them according to how they are written, which is by parallelism. And we gave you examples, synonymous, parallelism, antithetic, synthetic, and then there are variations on that. Uh, last time, we talked to you about how uh, we can learn from the Psalms because of their, the acrostic nature of many of them. So an acrostic means, uh, just like when you were a kid and, um, in elementary school, and they want, you know, for Mother's Day, they wanted you to write a peon of praise to your mom, and so what they had you do was take each letter of the word mother and start a sentence with that letter, you know, M, mom, you're the greatest. Oh, other moms are not as good. <laughs> I better stop right there. But it went all through, you know, the, the, you know, so the first letter, okay, well, that happens in the book of Psalms with the 22 letters that are in the Hebrew alphabet. So Psalm 9, two verses for each letter. Psalm 10, two verses each. Psalm 25, one verse apiece. Psalm 34, one verse apiece. Psalm 37, two verses each. Psalm 111, half a verse for each. So you get two letters per verse. Per, not, not per verse, but in each verse, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. Psalm 119, eight verses for every letter. So there's 176 verses in Psalm 119. Psalm 145, one verse each. Some of those are perfect acrostics, like Psalm 119 is. And in most King James Bible, at the head of each segment of eight verses, they show you, they give you the letter and transliterate it for you. But many of these are imperfect acrostics. And that means that there's some letters missing, some letters skipped. And uh, there's something to be said about that because um, 
Sometimes we go through in our own life times when uh, that I refer to as broken acrostic times. It's a broken acrostic. And if you don't have all the letters, you can't put the sentence together. And if you don't have all the pieces, pieces you can't get the puzzle together. And, and there's sometimes you're just like that. And all you can do is wait on the Lord. And all you can do is stand on what he's given you. Uh, and, and know that if you, you know, quote, endure to the end of that sifting that Satan is putting you through, you come out on the other side. Not only are you okay, but you are able to help others just like Jesus said to Peter. So, having asked how they were written and how do we learn from them, I, I also need you to know how truth is transferred in the Psalms. And the short answer is the word pictures. Now, there's a sense in which all the Bible is a picture book, and God knows that all of us are children when it comes to spiritual things. So, basically... God gave us a picture book in the Bible, but there is a special sense in which the Psalms is a book of pictures because of the way that the psalmists use figures of speech. Now, we, we finished, kind of finished Psalm 1 last time, but, I, but turn to Psalm 1 right now. I want to give you some examples of these pictures in figures of speech. You know, when they do uh, clinical studies, you might see a graph. On that graph, it shows you, you know, how well a specific chemo treatment might work against a certain cancer. And uh, actually, it is a picture of the processes taking place in that cell. If it's a Venn diagram or if it's a pie chart, well then, you know, it's even more descriptive in terms of what it displays, even at just a glance. We just had our pastor's retreat, uh, you know, a week ago, and two, the two main things we do is to set the calendar and then set our budget from that. And at some point uh, before the first of the year, you know, we'll probably pass out a pie chart that says, okay, here's, here's where your dollar goes, uh, if you need to know. Here's, here's what the budget's made of. But even more than that, I know it's a mundane thing, and I know not everybody's a math person, so we don't give this level of detail, but actually, a budget for a church is a reflection of life. So I never look at our budgets don't tell the people who are department heads this, but I never look at our budgets as a lid meant to, you know, meant as, a, as something to prevent um, life from taking place. Um, life's more important than money. So all, the main thing I'm concerned about is that it's recorded accurately because then I can look on that sheet and it's like in the movie, The Matrix, and you know, you're seeing all of these you know, zeros and ones you know, flow, flow up the screen, but, but there's a way in which you can look at that long enough that you can see the picture of what's going on. And, and a budget is like that. It's numbers and yet it's not. It's life because it tells what is going on. Tells what's going on in terms of missions through our church, tell us what's going on in terms of outreach and evangelism. 
It tells what is going on among us in our relationships because the events and things that go on, it is a record of life. Likewise, now I know this will seem mundane to the rest of you who are not math people. I mean, who are math people? What we're going to look at tonight is kind of a, a word-oriented linguistic. It is totally the opposite of our age because our age is postmodern, and postmodernism says everything in life, there is no absolute truth in life because everything is simply a linguistic construct. And you could have said anything, but you happen to say that. So that's the construct in which we live, but that doesn't mean it's true. There is no truth. And, you know, it's just, it's just whatever you want to say about it. So that's where our society is at. And, and I'm just saying, Book of Psalms would correct that on every level. Because God and the Bible is absolutely 180 degrees um, different from that because when, when we look at these figures of speech, they picture the processes by which the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And they do it in such a way that it is absolute truth about your life. Now, so what are, what are these pictures that are going to transfer life to us through the book of Psalms. Okay, did I say turn to Psalm 1? Psalm 1, verse 3. This will be fresh in our mind because we just got done looking at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 3. As a matter of fact, who has a good outside playground voice that would read verses 3 and 4? Psalm 1, verses 3 and 4. Just stand up and read Psalm 1. Verse 3 and 4. He shall be like a tree planted by the uh, rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Okay, this is letter A. Here's the first picture. It is called a simile. S-I-M-I-L-E, a simile. Because a simile is a picture because it is a comparison based on some resemblance, but it always uses one of the two words, like or as. So of the key words in your Bible, like and as are two of the main key words. I mean, you may be crazy like a fox, and, and the Lord was not said to be like a shield to us, but to be our shield. So that's a metaphorical representation, not a simile. But when you use like or as, that is a picture by way of comparison using, it is a simile, it is a picture, it's teaching, it is transferring life to us by what it says. And you are either like a tree or driven as the chaff. So if your view of truth is the same as the view that our children are being taught, which is a postmodern view, 
which is that there is no absolute because it's all just a linguistic construct and therefore you create your own truth. You do what is true for you. You are the one who, you are the only one who's able to say what is true. Okay, that's what our, okay, you will be driven like chaff. That's just the result. <laughs> that's, that's why we's in the mess we's in. And, uh, you know, and our kids who are being fed that type of philosophy are growing up in the situations we're growing and making the choices they make. And uh, it's because, well, like, you know, nothing matters anyway. So there's no, no correct view of truth. But you will either be like a tree, rooted, grounded, stable, fruitful, or you will be driven as chaff. And that's simply bottom line. Uh, Psalm 6. Turn to Psalm 6. Somebody, when you get to Psalm 6, verse 6, if you've got a good outside playground voice, stand up and read Psalm 6, verse 6. I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I, make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. So, this is number two, letter B. Hyperbole. Hyperbole, that's another, that's picturesque language. Because so many times here in the Psalms, we may see the psalmist say a little bit more than what is actually literally meant. So I'm weary with my groaning. I, 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 you know, I make my bed swim. Well, that's not literally what's taken place. But that is hyperbole because regardless of the reality, that speaks truth to our soul because that's exactly the way we feel about it. I am drowning. I mean, I'm treading water. I'm about to go down for the last time. How many of us, how many times do we feel like that? So the good thing about Psalms is you can usually read until you find yourself and then keep reading. So when you're drowning, find the passage where the psalmist, I mean, he wasn't literal, obviously didn't literally drown because he's writing the psalm, but in how he is saying it, he feels like that is so. Turn to Psalm 35. So when you say something like, man, they made enough food to feed Cox's army. Well, that's hyperbole. I mean, I don't know who Cox was, and I don't know Cox's army. I think it had something to do with the Civil War. Apparently, it was just a whole lot of people, and it would have taken a whole lot of food. And so that's just a phrase that we use. But it's hyperbole for how much there is of what we've got. Okay, somebody else, stand up and read Psalm 35, verse 10. Verse 10, Psalm 35. All my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee? which delivers the, the poor from him that is too strong for him, yea, the poor and the needy from him that's spoiled. Okay, let me point out to you what you're seeing right there. This, this is the third thing. It's letter C, personification. My bones shall say. Well, his bones weren't speaking, but he was speaking as if his bones were speaking because sometimes... We need, we need to feel like that. We need to know that. We need to say that. And okay, if, to, to that degree, to that extent, it may be true that, that words are going to shape reality. Now, the postmoderns say that since 
Reality is only a linguistic construct. It's not really real, and there's no absolute truth in it. But what the Bible would say is, no, you can um, feel the truth of a thing by saying the correct thing about it. You can live in the truth, God's truth, and the truth of God for your life if you simply say the correct thing about your life. And there are times when... It needs to come so much from the core of your being that your bones say, Lord, who is like unto thee? Turn to Psalm 52. So personification attributes intelligence to inanimate objects or even abstract ideas. So if we say the lightning danced... You know, or this, this afternoon before we came back up here to church, it got a little bit windy. And I don't know, we got a crack somewhere in one of the doors or something, and you could just hear a whistle. And so when you say the wind, the wind howled, or when you feel like your alarm clock yells at you Monday morning, or when you say, that piece of pie is calling my name, all that is personification. Uh, Psalm 52, somebody read verse 4. Psalm 52, verse 4. Now let us all devouring words hold our deceitful tongue. Okay, so this is number 4, letter D. Synecdoche. Synecdoche. S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E. Synecdoche. Because when it says, Thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue... You know, which is a good way of saying that if you're not going to say the correct thing according to God's word, then what you say wrong and is deceitful will devour you. But when it says, thou lovest all devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue, the deceitful tongue actually represents the deceitful person, not just their tongue. I mean, he's talking about the devil, or he's talking about the devil in your life, or he's talking about you whenever you don't say the things you should, and you need to say to yourself, get thou behind me, devil, because you're not, you're not saying what you should say, and what you should admit, and truth uh, as it is in Jesus, and truth according to the word of God. So it's not just your tongue that is devilish, it is you. So this is where... A part of something is used to represent the whole thing. That's what synecdoche is. That's the picture that we see when this type of language is used. Or conversely, whenever the whole thing is used to represent just a part. Now, Kansas City lost today. What did I just do? That's synecdoche. I mean, Kansas City didn't lose, the Chiefs lost. But what I did was, I took the whole, you know, and so the part and the whole are now tied together in this picture because it seemed to us like if the Chiefs lost, we lost. I mean, if the Chiefs lost, I lost. And we need to be looking at the Psalms of Lament Instead of what we're looking at, because the Chiefs... So, so, okay, so, okay, Kansas City won by a touchdown. 
No, we mean the team did, but the team represents all of us. Turn to Psalm 80. Psalm 80, 80, Psalm 80. Okay, somebody stand up and read Psalm 80, verses 14 and 15. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine. And the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. Huh, that's interesting. So this is the fifth thing, this fifth, fifth way in which the Psalms and the Bible, but especially Book of Psalms, is teaching us through pictures, and that is letter E with allegory. This is an allegory because verses 8 to 16 of Psalm 80 are referring to Israel, but Asaph calls Israel a vine. I'll be turning to Psalm 84, but let me... Let me give you a, maybe another more modern picture of, of allegory. Uh, how many of you uh, ever saw the movie Saving Private Ryan? Tom Hanks and Saving Private Ryan. Um, you remember at the end of the movie, this American soldier is kind of rounding up the Germans and this, this one uh, German soldier that was ca- uh, captured starts you know, lipping off at him. So he just, he just pops a cap in him. You know, he just shoots him. And yet that same soldier earlier in the movie, earlier in the movie, that German soldier was wrestling with and fighting life or death with an American Jewish soldier earlier in the movie. And like they were in this church and they were up in the, up in the loft someplace, and they're fighting each other. And that American soldier that at the end seems so brave, at that moment, he's like lying in a fetal position on the steps and not going up to help his buddy. You remember that? I didn't dream this, right? You do remember that, that scene? Okay, so, he's, so he's, he's all, he doesn't go up to help the Jewish soldier who's fighting for his life. And the, you know, the Jewish guy eventually gets, gets a knife in his chest from the German soldier. So the German soldier's on top of him, and uh, so eventually he kills him. And the German soldier comes down, sees the other American soldier just curled up on the steps crying, and he just so disdains him, he just, he just walks by him, keeps going. You remember that? But then at the end of the movie, that American soldier that had been so fearful and afraid and chicken that the Germans so disdained and disdained in front of the others at the end of the movie, well, German soldier gets shot by him. And all of that is a metaphor for America's involvement in World War II. World War II did not start December 7th, 1941. World War II started September of 1939. I mean, you might even say back in 38, whenever Hitler went in the Anschluss of uh, Austria, and so they, you know, they make Austria part of Germany. Now, you don't know this, but that gave him 90 tons of gold. 
mean, there's only enough gold in the world to fill three Olympic-sized pools. That's all there is. That's why gold is a standard and is kind of, you know, it's worth so much. But when he took over Austria, he got 90 tons of it. And that financed what he was going to do next in terms of starting the war by, you know, invading Poland. So, okay, that was in September 39. That, I mean, that is when World War II started. And, and Great Britain was in it a long time before we were. And we were the soldier crying and sucking our thumb not coming to the aid of the Jews because from the very beginning, I mean, I, I, guess, I guess you'd say at the beginning. Now, this was 1933, 34, 35. So after Hitler became chancellor in 33, the plan was let's deport the Jews. Let's, let's send them to Madagascar. Okay, but they, you know, they couldn't quite work that out with the shipping lines. So then, you know, they're like, okay, well, if we can't deport them, let's just kill them. We've got to have a final solution here. So, I mean, that started as soon as everything else was going on. And then wherever they rolled to and whatever they took over, the Jews went to death. You know, with, with them coming in. With, uh, they, they had and They had uh, special... Uh, military teams set up who would go in and their sole job was to wipe out villages, wipe out, you know, whatever Jews they could find, you know, um, uh, round them up and either kill them or put them on freight cars. So they, so if we can't export them, we will drive them deeper into where we can put them in a concentration camp and take care of them. Okay. And America is sitting on the, we're sitting on the sidelines. We're totally isolationists. We're like, this is not our fight. And I guess we don't even kind of care what's happening with the Jews. But then at the end, <laughs> I mean, the whole thing is a metaphor for our involvement in World War II because then at the end, well, we're popping a cap in, in the people who started the whole thing. I mean, we're... we're we're kicking butt and taking names. We are turning that place out. And it was, you know, it was a great shift because after World War I, every boot came back. Every boot came back after World War I. We sent a million men over to Europe in World War I. We had a million more preparing and, you know, would have had many more behind that. In the, so it took us a year from the time we declared war to get soldiers over there. And we were over there about a year. We lost 120,000 soldiers killed. 640,000 in the Civil War. We, war, we, we lost 120,000 in World War I, but that was only in one year's time. We lost 120,000. That's 10,000 souls a month. So if we had been in World War I as long as the other nations had, who lost millions, nine million people died in World War I. Well, we only lost 120,000. So after World War I, it's like, okay, we're done with this. Every boot came back. Well, when we had to go back in there 25 years later and, and turn that place out, no, 
No, not every boot has come back. We've got tens of thousands of soldiers in bases in Germany, NATO, other parts of the world. I mean, we are the new Romans. But that whole movie, that, though those scenes in particular were a metaphor for what our involvement was in World War II. So, um, Psalm 84, verse 11. Okay, we've got an allegory. So the allegory for our involvement, allegory, uh, vine referring to Israel. So a description of one thing under the name of another. Okay, last one, and then we're going to move on to uh, looking at Psalm 2. Psalm 84. Did I say turn to Psalm 84? Somebody read, stand up and read verse 11. Psalm 84, verse 11. The Lord God is the Son and Jesus. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will be withhold from them that walk upright. So this, so from we move from allegory, the fifth thing, to number six, letter F, metaphor, which is a unilateral comparison based on resemblance. Uh, if, if I say all the world is a stage, that's a metaphor. It's not literally a stage, but it does resemble a stage in that it has characters, it has plot, it has story being run out on it. Um, is, Israel is called a vine in Psalm 80. That's allegory. Israel does not resemble a vine, but God does represent, God does resemble a sun and shield, metaphorically speaking. So I want to stop there with that. We'll finish, uh, finish off with that. Uh, Lord willing, next week. And instead, move with me now to Psalm 2, and let's see how deep we can get into Psalm 2. Psalm 1 predicts the moral glory of Jesus Christ that we see at his first coming. In other words, Jesus is the blessed man of Psalm 1. Now Psalm 2 foretells his millennial glory at the second coming. But just like Psalm 1 showed us, not just the blessed man, but the ungodly, Psalm 2 doesn't just show us the millennial glory of Christ, but it also shows us the rebellious man. So Psalm 2 is one of the nine major psalms that we would list as being messianic, messianic psalms or psalms about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There are nine of them in the book of Psalms. This is the first one. And, and you can learn so much about the life of Christ that is not displayed in the Gospels through these nine psalms. Because there are direct references to his life, to his ministry, especially to his second coming. That is what is found in these psalms. So the blessed man of Psalm 1 and the anointed king of Psalm 2 are both the same man. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four speakers here in Psalm 2. 
So it's not stereo, it's quad. And, and this is the key, I think, to understanding this psalm. So first, the psalmist David speaks in verses 1 to 3. David speaks and David sees the opposite taking place of what God has promised him. I mean, didn't he though? I mean, God had promised David, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a descendant that is going to sit on your throne. Lo and behold, not only is that not taking place, but he's got, you know, one son that uh, instigates a palace coup, drives David off of his throne, and that, that same son, Absalom, had already killed one of the other sons. I mean, it just, it just doesn't look good for David. And, you know, so, and David messes up with Bathsheba. And then when David's dying, uh, one of his other sons, before he's dead, starts portraying himself as the next in line. And David has to step in and step up and say, no, look, it's going to be Solomon and here's what we're going to do. But it just didn't, it didn't look good for, for that promise being fulfilled. So the psalmist David is speaking. So the first word of this song is why. Secondly, God the Father speaks in verses 4 to 6. And God answers David's question with a laugh. When men united against the Son of God at his first coming, heaven wept. But when they unite against him at his second coming, God's going to laugh. So at Christ's first coming, they ganged up against him. They smote the shepherd and the sheep scattered. They took him. They crucified him. I mean, God pulled a curtain across the scene so that it darkness across the land so that no one can see, could see the humiliation of what he had to go through in suffering for your sins and mine. But that was the first coming, heaven wept. Said the second coming ain't going to be that way. And this time it won't just be a few Romans and Jews united against him. It'll be the whole world united against him and their armies called together at the battle of Armageddon into the valley of Megiddo. And at that time, heaven laughs. Third, the sun speaks, verses seven to nine. So you know how he knows how conveniently the 12 verses of this psalm break into quads of just three verses each. And the sun speaks and that gives David the assurance that God's anointed descendant from his line is actually going to reign. So his dynasty, is at, that promise is going to be fulfilled. So he's already acclaimed on high as God's son. So there's no doubt about his ultimate outcome on planet Earth. And then finally, the Holy Spirit speaks, verses 10 to 12. He upholds the claims of Christ. He gives a warning to the nations. He says, look, it is not too late to submit to the Son 
who's going to return. So Psalm 1, the first psalm, emphasized the law. It's talked about the godly versus the ungodly, but this psalm takes us out of the law and into the prophets. And it carries us right up to the great tribulation, and it brings us to Christ's triumph at the battle of Armageddon, and our triumph with him as we ride into that with him. So what is the imminency or what is the immediacy of of Psalm 2 for us? Well, the answer is that all the conditions for the second coming were put into place by the time of Acts chapter 3. I mean, everything you needed for the second coming to take place was put into place by the time of Acts chapter 3. And, you know, God extended grace and continued to make an offer to the Jews through the time of Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was stoned and maybe all the way up to, say, uh, chapter 11 or so when Paul and Barnabas are finally sent out. And, I mean, that's, you know, the transition going through there. But, but by Acts chapter 3, everything was in place for the second coming. That's what Peter said in Acts 2. That's what he was telling the Jews. He said, look what you're seeing here. This is that spoken of by the prophet Joel. And what Joel was talking about were the signs of the second coming. So you're seeing some of that right now. If you will receive Jesus, Stephen says the same thing. He says, look, You know, before you stone me, I just need you to know. I'm looking up into heaven and I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, when he went up there, he was seated at the right hand of God. But right now, I see him and he's standing up. That means he is ready to come back for you. And they just rejected it all the way through. So that means that the Messianic Psalms speak to us about several things. First, number one, they speak to us about the Christ of the second coming, who is the one that we are looking for. Then the Messianic Psalms, then number two, they speak to us about the scenes that we ought to see shifting into place before that second coming of Christ. I mean, we're obviously in the last days. This is obviously the end times. I mean, uh, uh, everything you see going on, and I just, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to believe how things have fallen into place just within one generation of time. You know, and all the pride that we had and all the hubris and all the, we come back from World War II and, and we've kicked butt and we've taken names and we've, we've cleaned that place out and, and we won I mean, we won. We took all the gold. We took, I I mean, I don't know how much of it is still there in Fort Knox, but we we got all the gold. We got, I mean, uh, um, uh, Great Britain was bankrupt. They they finally finished paying their World War II debt to us in 1996. And other nations who owed us the same way. You know, we've been living, we've been living high on the hog. We were the, we won. It's like, oh, and you look the the American century, the 1900s, and uh, the glory of everything up through the 60s, 
You know, we won in the 40s, and that was good for about 20 years. <laughs> it was good for about one generation. And that's, a, you know, and then it's kind of started cracking and crumbling and falling away from that. And now, I mean, what are we different from anybody else? We're, we're as Buddhist as the Buddhists are. And, and we're as European now in our thoughts and our morals, pretty much as the, you know, we're, we're as European as the Europeans are. And okay, you know, I, we used to think it was odd and, and bad advice for European nations to say, look, here's how we're going to defund our police. We're going to do away with policing, and instead we're simply going to make crimes like drug use legal. So we'll just, make, we'll just legalize drugs, and then, you know, we'll have to spend the money on the policing, and uh, instead let's, you know, put money into rehabilitation, this and that, enlightenment, and, you know, let's do it that way. And we used to think, oh, yeah, no, that'll never happen. Well, guess what? How many states... You know, how many states can you go into and legally you can, you know, drugs that we used to say were illegal or legal and, 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 and they, you know, and I, mean, and I understand this is also true of alcohol. If you get enough in you, it is mind altering. Uh, so, uh, you know, we see society shifting into place. Number three, the necessary compatibility with Christ of suffering with him. Well, we now have it. We now are beginning to have that as Christians. I mean, Paul was there all along, Acts 14, verse 22. You must, through much suffering, enter into the kingdom of God. But you know, we had it so nice for so long in this country which took what we believed and supported it as a, you know, Judeo-Christian society. I mean, it was just so good. Well, all of that's kind of gone now. I mean, a lot of it is gone. They're not with us in, in terms of what God says about gender roles, morality, and all sorts of other things. And so, okay, that our suffering is distinct from and yet in parallel with well, the Jewish remnant will suffer, leading them up to the second coming during the tribulation. So these, those Messianic Psalms, I mean, they say a whole lot if you know what you're looking for. Well, let's go back to Psalm 2, just in the few minutes we have remaining. Let's at least get a start on this psalm. Since this psalm divides equally into four parts... The voice of David tells us about God's guilty subjects. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1. Why do the heathen rage? Now, how do the heathen show their rage? Well, this is one of those times when, um, you know, one of those times that show you why a King James center column reference Bible is so amazing. I don't even know who prints those anymore. I mean, maybe there's some, maybe, maybe some Thomas Nelson ones. Uh, I mean, you almost have to you get Cambridge or Oxford Bibles anymore to get a King James Bible with center column references. But this, this is why a tool like that for you is so amazing because if you have one, 
you see a little letter or number by the word rage. And when you trace that word rage to the margin, you see how the James gang tells you that this could be translated or tumultuously assemble. Now, if, if that is not a metaphor of January 6th, I don't know what is. I'm just saying, okay, the heathen tumultuously assemble. If that is not a picture of Antifa and, and protests, I mean, if that, you know, we've got it in protests and politics, whether they are protesting and politicizing pandemic or other things, this is exactly what the heathen are doing. Doesn't matter if they're conservative heathen, they're, they're liberal heathen, they're progressive heathen, they, you know, whatever heathen they are, they, they tumultuously assemble for their, you know, what, for their reality, for what they want to say, and for what they want to see done. So when you think about what we've endured the last year and a half plus with those three Ps of pandemic politics and protests, and although for the church and for the Christian that is offset by the three Ps we talked about this morning, um, praise, prayer, and preaching, but when you look at what's happened in our society, and, and think about this, the next time that the police declare an unlawful assembly on the plaza, and then a riot starts. The heathen are raging. And, and not really that it accomplishes anything. I mean, not really that it accomplishes any good solution. I mean, a riot is an expression of the fact that people believe there is no hope. And that's why years ago when there were the riots in Ferguson, our idea was partnership with some churches to, to, to do a march and take a stand. We did that down on the Liberty Memorial to say that hope lives here. There is hope. I mean, I understand why, they, why you burn down your own stuff, because you think it's never going to change anyway. You think it's hopeless. I mean, that is simply on a cultural, societal level, the same thing that Kurt Cobain did. You know, I alluded to this this morning. Why, why did he kill himself? Well, you know, there's pain, and it's never going to change until I am annihilated. I can't seem to get that annihilation done through yoga and, and other means of calling on false gods. I can't seem to get that done that way, so okay, I'll just... You know, I'll just take it into my own hands. There's no, there's no hope. It's never going to change. I've got to end the pain. Okay, that's why the heathen rage. And what in their raging, it doesn't bring up any solution to the problems. Uh, you know, I think somebody needs to go out giving the hope that is in this psalm which is the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Because the only option 
is to note three things about their riotous rebellion. And we might even have time to get into one. Verse one, letter A, their rebellion is formal. Verse one, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Again, if you have a King James center column reference Bible, you can see in the margin how the James gang informs you that to imagine something, to dream something, means you are actually plotting something because that word also means to meditate. Why do the people meditate a vain thing? And actually, you saw this same word in Psalm 1 verse 2 where it's translated exactly that way. The heathen plot. I mean, that they... They plot certain things and they think that's going to be the solution. No, that's vanity. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to have more policing. Okay, you can plot that. It's not, it's not going to work. Well, I'm going to defund the police. Okay, you can plot that. That's not going to work. You know, God gave us imagination for a reason. You don't have to use your imagination to feed your lust all the time or your paranoia or your envy, or your discontent. The godly person uses it to meditate on what God is saying because that is not a vain thing. And to plot out what God's purpose is so they can follow it. But the works of the ungodly are formally premeditated. And, and here's the dealio premeditated crime is not a crime of passion. I mean, it's premeditated. I mean, it's one thing if, you know, I kill somebody as a crime of passion, usually that's not necessarily a, and if, you know, a, a thing for which I would be put to death. You know, I usually get the death penalty for that. But if it's premeditated, and I imagined how I was going to do it, uh, that's not a crime of passion, that's a crime of purpose, and that is exactly where the people are at. So, I hate to leave you hanging, but I'm hoping that'll get you back next time. And now next Sunday, because uh, we have the Lord's Supper, we won't have Sunday night service, and I won't have Awana, it also happens to be Halloween night, but many times that we have Lord's Supper, we don't have Sunday night service. And so it'll be two weeks before we get back into this, so hold, hold that thought, and um, then we'll come back and try and finish up. Go ahead and stand. Bump elbows with your neighbor if they're close to you. Father, we thank you, Lord. We come, we come to you tonight, and it's just amazing to us how we can step off into a psalm, didn't necessarily even plan this, didn't even know, and then you hit us with right where we are at, with right where our country's at, with right where everything is at with right where truth is at, with right where politics are at, right where, where justice and injustice lie, and right where protests come in, and right where all the ideas being fed to our kids in school. I mean, it's, it's right here. I mean, you're, you're defining life for us through this book. And you're giving life to us through your word. 
because it defines for us what is the true construct of truth, what reality actually is. I mean, this is a light that we have that the lost do not. Shame on us if we have this light and do not walk in it and do not walk by it and do not reach out to others to bring them into the only unvain thing that they can imagine. And that is God's actual purpose in eternity for them. So Lord, we thank you for tonight. We pray you continue to walk us through these psalms together in weeks we have ahead. God asks that you'd be with us even this week. Let this psalm reset our mind so that mentally we meditate on your word. We meditate, we plot related to your purpose. So Lord, you can use us to bring fruit. We can be that tree planted, rooted, grounded, growing, giving fruit to you, giving glory back to you. So many of of our trees changing this fall and they come to these glorious colors and I just look at it like they're giving glory back to God, thanking you for the season of rain and sun and growth and now they're just going to give you glory for it. And Lord, we want to be like that in these last days. Let us, be the, let us be the church giving glory to you. Let us be the church bringing color to the community, adding something of value and of, you know, that leads people to the light and gets their own soul ready for eternity. And Father, we'll just give you the thanks. We'll give you the praise. We ask it tonight in Jesus' precious name, amen.